I'm Kristen Meyershand, and this is the Apiango Line. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapesky, Rob Filikowski, Brian and Carol Peterson, and Lynn Stewart, all members of the Apiango Readers Theatre. They are here in honour of all those veterans living and dead who have defended Canada. In a phrase, they are the ones who protect our two fundamental rights that many Canadians too often take for granted – our freedom of choice, and equality of opportunity. And whether you think of those rights as prodigious syllables or mere eloquent words, Remembrance Day has always been about more than just remembering our war dead. It's about knowing what it was that those thousands upon thousands of men and women in the Canadian Armed Forces have fought and died for. For whatever war and armed conflict or peacekeeping means to the rest of the world, we here in Canada know of someone who has sacrificed their lives to preserve our rights and freedoms. So once a year, it's good to stop for a moment and think of war veterans, not in terms of the sort of imagined personal heroics that Hollywood movies are made out of, but rather to think of what motivates countries such as Canada to go to war. It's never been about personal heroics. It's always been about the preservation of two fundamental principles that underpin all liberal democracies, such as we have here in Canada, freedom of choice and equality of opportunity. And so it does a body good to sometimes think of those two democratic principles and how they are reflected in even the smallest moments of war. So today, the Apiango Readers Theatre brings us 12 such moments some small and seemingly insignificant, others large and world-changing, but moments all taken from the millions that occurred during the First World War, or the Great War, as it was then known. So here is the Apiango Readers Theatre, with 12 unforgettable moments that, if not remembered, should be appreciated on a day like today. On a festive sunny morning in late June 1914, two gunshots rang out in the crowded streets of Sarajevo, they set in motion something that would ultimately define the 20th century, the Great War, the war to end all wars, or as we now know it, the First World War. Those shots were fired by a 19-year-old Slavic nationalist, a Bosnian who, with the help of some Serbs, wanted to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was his way of forcing that empire to give up its rule of his homeland, then part of two unrecognized nations that would become modern-day Bosnia and Serbia. Sarajevo, now the capital of Bosnia, had entered the 20th century much as it would leave it, a deadly tinderbox of political intrigue needing only the slightest spark to ignite a conflagration of local nationalist conflict that would eventually spread like wildfire across Europe and by the Second World War and the Cold War around the world. Yet few people in the 21st century have ever stopped long enough to catch sight of what actually happened on that fine sunny morning of June 28, 1914. Well, we are here to tell you. Early that morning, more than a half dozen Bosnian and Serbian conspirators had lined up along the route to City Hall that the Archduke and his pregnant wife Sophie were to take. Each of the six main conspirators had a different vantage point that would give them little more than a few feet from the Archduke's passing motorcade. One of the conspirators, Borjovjetic, later gave this eyewitness account. 
When Francis Ferdinand and his retinue drove from the train station, they were allowed to pass the first two conspirators. The motor cars were driving too fast to make an attempt feasible, and in the crowd there were many Serbians. Throwing a grenade would have killed many innocent people. But when the car passed the third conspirator, a man called Gabrinovic, he frantically threw his grenade. It had a 10-second delay, and so when it hit the side of the royal car, it bounced off. The Archduke saw it coming and was wily enough to duck and cover himself and his wife, and so they remained uninjured. The grenade bounced off the royal car, exploding under the car behind. Two officers riding in it were seriously injured. The driver of the Archduke's royal car immediately sped up and raced to City Hall, where the royal reception went on without a hitch. Unbelievably, after the reception, the Archduke and his wife got back into their car and were taken by mistake, back along some of their original route from earlier that morning. Even more amazingly, the Archduke's royal car suddenly stalled right in front of Gavrilo Princip, one of the remaining conspirators, who just as frantically raised his Browning handgun and got off those two shots that would forever change the world. Count Franz von Harrach rode on the running board of the royal car serving as a bodyguard for the Archduke. This is his eyewitness account that we pick up right after Princip fired his two shots. As the car quickly reversed, a thin stream of blood spurted from His Highness's mouth onto my right cheek. As I was pulling out my handkerchief to wipe the blood away from his mouth, the Duchess cried out to him, In heaven's name, what has happened to you? At that, she slid off the seat and lay on the floor of the car with her face between his knees. I had no idea that she too was hit and thought she had simply fainted with fright. Then I heard his Imperial Highness say, Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Stay alive for the children. At that, I seized the Archduke by the collar of his uniform to stop his head drooping forward and asked him if he was in great pain. He answered me quite distinctly, It's nothing. His face began to twist somewhat, but he went on repeating six or seven times, ever more faintly, as he gradually lost consciousness it's nothing. Then, after a short pause, there was a violent choking sound caused by the bleeding. It was stopped as we reached the hospital. Before the day was out, Franz, Sophie, and their unborn child were all dead, and the heir apparent was no more. That unfortunate event in Sarajevo would lead to a series of political machinations that sparked the Great War. The 19-year-old assassin was immediately caught but escaped the death penalty at his trial because he was under the age of 21. Instead, he was sentenced to 20 years of hard labour. At his trial, Mr. Princip, the young Bosnian, said, I am a Yugoslav nationalist, aiming for the unification of all Yugoslavs, and I do not care what form of state, but it must be free from Austria. On April 28, 1918, while the First World War was still raging, Mr. Princip died of tuberculosis, exacerbated by his poor prison conditions, which had already claimed the use of his right arm, the arm he used to take his two shots. As the Great War got underway by the end of that summer in 1914, 
It provided for all manner of new technology to be tested or developed under wartime conditions. One of the first to enter the fray was a recently invented airplane known as a biplane. At first it was used mainly in reconnaissance work, providing a bird's eye view of a battlefield, especially useful for locating enemy positions and troop movements. Indeed, the biplane proved its initial worth as early as August 23, 1914, at the site of a battle raging at Mons, a small industrial town in southern Belgium, where the advancing British army met the German army as it was marching towards France. Thanks to a British observer flying over the battlefield, the Allies could see the Germans were preparing their army for a sneak attack. But thanks to that biplane and its aerial reconnaissance, the British managed a quick retreat, saving the day and thousands of British lives. A few days later, continued aerial reconnaissance also saved Paris itself by alerting the French who halted the German attack at the Battle of Marne in early September. It didn't take the Germans long to start trying to shoot down those reconnaissance biplanes that flew with no armament whatsoever. Indeed, it would be months before a French pilot finally strapped a machine gun to the nose of his plane to create the first true fighter pilot. Up until then, aerial warfare was largely a matter of biplane pilots arming themselves with pistols, rifles, and taking whatever pot shots they could at enemy aircraft. There was even one case, as you will see, when things got even more fundamental. It happened to Lieutenant W.R. Reed, a pilot with Britain's fledgling Royal Flying Corps. In the early days of August 1914, the Corps moved its 63 biplanes to France to provide aerial reconnaissance of enemy troops. Reed kept a diary, and so we join his story as he and his observer, Jackson, are flying over Mons in Belgium. Uh, one important note. Lieutenant Reed refers to his biplane as Henri. Jackson. Look, old boy. Me. Yes, I know. Jackson. I think we ought to go for him, old boy. Me. Better get home with your report. Jackson. I think we ought to go for him, old boy. Me. All right. I changed course for him, and as we passed the German Taube, Jackson got in two shots with the rifle. We turned and passed each other again with no obvious result. This happened three or four times. Then... Have you got a revolver, old boy? My ammunition's all gone. I, feeling rather sick of the proceedings, said, Yes, but no ammo. Give it to me, old boy, and this time fly past him as close as you can. I carried out instructions, and to my amazement, as soon as we got opposite the Tauba, Jackson, with my army-issue revolver grasped by the barrel, threw it at the Tauba's propeller. Of course it missed. And then, honor satisfied, we turned for home. 22 August. Today the French distinguished themselves by bringing down one of their own airships. They also often fire at us, and there is quite as much to fear from one's own side as from the Germans as one leaves the ground. Two machines that went out this morning on reconnaissance came back with several bullet holes in them. In one, the observer was shot in the stomach. Herbert, Shackleton, Fuller and I are the four pilots in our flight. We do more flying than most other flights, probably because Henri is a more reliable machine and is always ready. Sheck came back last night with six shot holes in his plane. One bullet missed the petrol tank only by an inch. 23 August. Went up for reconnaissance at 11.30 with Major Moss's observer. I could not get Henri to climb at first, so came down and lightened the load. Then we soon got away at 3,800 feet. We found the enemy very thick to the southeast of Touin, and a battle was in progress below us. The artillery on both sides were very busy. It was very interesting to watch. In one field, a French battery opened fire. 
It had not fired more than two rounds per gun when shell after shell from a German battery burst over them. It must have been perfect hell for the French battery and silenced them at once. On the way back, some German howitzer battery opened fire on us from northwest of Tuin. One shell splintered past through my left, but did no damage. Some infantry in Tuin also wasted a thousand rounds or so trying to bring us down. 24 August. All yesterday, heavy firing to the east and northeast, and it was apparent that the enemy was pushing us back. I was sent off onto some high ground to look out for zeppelins. Number 3 Squadron, ours, left at 2.30 p.m., landed at Belmont at 6.45 p.m., then ordered to retire further back to Le Cateau. A great rush to get off, as it was getting dusk. I and some others landed in a wrong field, but went on to the right one afterwards. Birch and his Blériot hit the telegraph wires in getting off and broke his machine, escaping with a shaking himself. 25 August. Yesterday the Germans had a victory at Mons. Today parts of Charleroi are in flames and the enemy are turning our left flank. I went off at 11 a.m. with Jackson as passenger. All our troops were in retreat, using every road available and making for Le Cateau. The whole of the French cavalry were retiring on Cambrai. Returned from reconnaissance at 1 p.m. and at 3.30 orders came to move to Saint-Quentin. As soon as we landed, a heavy rainstorm came on and swamped everything. I feel so sorry for poor Henri. It is doing him a great deal of harm, this rain and hot sun. 26 August. Off on reconnaissance at 7 a.m. with Jackson to report on engagements in the Le Cateau and Espignol area. The whole sight was wonderful. A fierce artillery engagement for the most part. We were getting the worst of it. We had all the German army corps against our little force. We could see nothing of the French. I watched one of our batteries put out of action. Shell after shell bursting on it. And then there was silence until more men were set up again. And it opened up again. Le Cateau was in flames. We were shelled by anti-aircraft guns, so I kept at 4,500 feet. We were also giving the Germans a bad time. Their cavalry and infantry nearly always advanced in masses, offering as they did so a splendid target and getting mown down by the score. There was not a suitable place to land at headquarters at Pertree. In landing, we skidded and as soon as we touched ground, the landing chassis gave way and Henri pitched on his nose. Jackson was pitched out about ten yards ahead and I was left in the machine. Neither of us was hurt, only shaken. Good old Henri. He did me well, and even at the last he did not do me in. There was no time to repair the damage, as shells were already falling over the town. So I hurriedly removed all the instruments, guns, maps, etc., and cut off the Union Jack, and so left Henri in his last resting place. When England declared war on August 4, 1914, it was expected to be a short war, over many believed by Christmas. Instead, Christmas 1914 saw the First World War at an absolute stalemate, with hundreds of thousands of soldiers already dead, and hundreds of thousands more living in subhuman conditions known as trench warfare. One of the soldiers was Joe Cassells, a Scotsman who signed up with the British Army to become a scout with the Black Watch. He spent Christmas Day, 1914, in one of those disgusting, rat-infested and muddy trenches. Here is his eyewitness account of that day. We were looking forward to spending Christmas in billets, but were disappointed when we were sent to hold a position on the left flank of an English battalion of what we believed to be the Sussex Regiment. It was just two days before Christmas when we took up this position. 
It was much quieter here. Snow had fallen during the night, giving the ground a sort of peaceful appearance, except for a few dark patches where some Jack Johnsons or Black Mariahs had landed toward dawn. Christmas Day. Just after stand-down, our mail was issued. It consisted mostly of parcels, and our part of the trench was very fortunate. Every man had at least two letters in as many parcels. I received three in the same handwriting and a two-pound box of chocolate almonds. Parcels containing socks, mittens, scarves, etc. were pounced upon by all hands, as these articles were very much needed at this time. Next in importance came the cigarettes, of which we received a goodly supply. I need hardly say that we all tasted one another's luxuries, shortbread, chocolates, currant cakes, which had to be eaten mostly with a spoon because of the rough handling they had had, and we exchanged confidences about our letters, whether they were from Miss Campbell, Mrs. Lowe, or Uncle Sandy. Every Tommy, every jock, learns to know and to love his trench mate as a brother. The men in these ditches feel as if they all belong to the one mother, sharing each other's confidences, both pleasant and sad. There is no selfishness, not even a thought of it over there. We were sitting around the fire steps of our trenches, thinking, ever thinking and wondering how many of us would live to see the same sun rise on another Christmas day. The sun was red. It appeared to be dripping red with blood when a slight commotion started up along to the right. I grasped my rifle and at the same time looked round the little traverse. I saw a few chaps with their heads over the parapet, which seemed unwise and extremely dangerous. I thought we'd been surprised by the Huns and took a glance in the direction of their trenches, which looked as quiet as our own. I could see thin lines of smoke rising up at irregular intervals from the fires they had built. Almost at the same instant, my eye caught sight of a figure, some six hundred yards to our right, proceeding in the direction of the body's trenches. And to crown all, he was a British Tommy. I thought the man must have gone out of his mind, and when I looked at where he came from, it seemed as if the whole regiment was viewing the daring proceedings of this solitary individual between the lines. At that part, the trenches were much nearer than at ours. They seemed there about two hundred yards apart, while ours were about five hundred yards distance from Fritz. I saw the solitary Tommy walk right on to within a few yards of the German entanglements and pause a minute. Then a Bosch's head could be seen. At this, Tommy picked his way over the entanglements very cautiously. My heart was in my mouth. I could scarcely keep from shouting when he reached the edge of the enemy parapet and disappeared. By this time, our regiment was practically all on the fire step, breathlessly watching and ready for what might happen after the disappearance of this madcap. Five minutes more elapsed. Then a head bobbed up at the same spot we had been watching, and out of the trench came the self-same Tommy. He was carrying something in his hand. My eyes kept steady on him until he reached his own parapet, where he stood a moment flourishing this article. Then, clasping it to him as if prizing it, he got down into the trench. While we had stood there for a moment, his fellow trenchmates threw out their arms to take his precious bundle from him, but as I say, he seemed to hold tightly onto it. When I looked back at the place he had just left, the Germans were waving their helmets with heads above the parapet. It was Christmas, all right, 
and we certainly got a Santa Claus surprise in watching these unusual proceedings. They were getting bolder on both sides at this part of the line, and a few men began walking on their parapets, finally coming closer and then meeting men from the enemy trench. Then followed a football match with regimental shirts tied up. To see those Tommies charging with their shoulders and explaining the game to the Germans, who were not so well acquainted with it, was a Christmas festival in itself that will never be forgotten by those who witnessed it. We found out afterward it was Spud Smith who had just received a lovely currant bun from home and was overjoyed with it. He was jumping around and making so much noise about it that the fellows dared him to take it over to the Germans and wish them a very Christmas. He at once threw off his equipment and made toward them where he received his Christmas present in the form of a bottle of schnapps. Spud Smith was the madcap of his regiment. A few minutes after midnight, we were brought back to war again by the Germans shelling us all along the line. So much for a short war. By the following May in 1915, another one of those unspeakable tragedies of war was about to occur, the sinking of the Lusitania off the Irish coast. It's a tragedy that has always sparked a special feeling in the upper Madawaska Valley, for the varnished wooden promenade decks of that fine ship, the fastest ship of its day, those decks were all made of Madawaska Valley timbers, another feather in the cap of J.R. Booth, who also supplied the timber that built the Canadian Parliament buildings. Last year, we told you at this time of the perspective of one of the American passengers on the Lusitania who survived that horrific moment. This year, we have something a little different. It had been a very successful run. The German submarine U-20 had entered the Irish Sea on May 5th, and now, the morning of May 7th, the submarine claimed its third victim. The U-20 had only three torpedoes left in its arsenal and was low on fuel. As a result, Captain Walter Schwieger, the ship's commander, decided to steer for the open waters of the Atlantic and home. He was unaware that his greatest prize was steaming straight for him and that his actions that day would ultimately bring America into the war. The Lusitania had left New York City on May 1st, bound for Liverpool. On the afternoon of May 7th, she was steaming off the coast of Ireland within easy sailing distance of her destination. Known as the Greyhound of the Seas, the Lusitania was the fastest liner afloat and relied on her speed to defend against submarine attack. However, she was not running at full speed because of fog, nor was the ship taking an evasive zigzag course. It was a sitting duck and was headed straight into the sights of the U-20. The two ships converged at about 2 p.m. After stalking his prey for an hour, Captain Schwieger unleashed one torpedo that hit its target amidships. The initial explosion was followed quickly by a second, more powerful detonation. Within 20 minutes, the great liner had slipped under the water, taking 1,198 victims with her. Among the dead were 138 Americans. Many in the United States were outraged. A declaration of war was narrowly averted when Germany vowed to cease her policy of unrestricted submarine warfare that allowed attacks on merchant ships without warning. However, 
American public opinion had turned against Germany, and when she resurrected her unrestricted submarine warfare policy in February of 1917, America decided to go to war. Captain Schwieger kept a diary of that voyage. We join his story as he catches first sight of the Lusitania in the early afternoon of May 7, 1915, 2 p.m. Straight ahead, the four funnels and three masts of a steamer with a course at right angles to ours. Ship is made out to be a large passenger liner. 3.05 p.m. Went to 11 meters and ran at high speed on a course converging with that of the steamer, in hopes that it would change course to starboard along the Irish coast. The steamer turned to starboard, headed for Queenstown, and thus made it possible to approach for a shot. Ran at high speed till 3 p.m. in order to secure an advantageous position. 3.10 p.m. Clear bow shot at 700 meters. Angle of intersection 90 degrees. Estimated speed 22 nautical miles. Shot struck starboard side close behind the bridge. An extraordinary heavy detonation followed, with a very large cloud of smoke far above the front funnel. A second explosion must have followed that of the torpedo boiler, or coal, or powder. The superstructure above the point of impact and the bridge were torn apart. Fire broke out. Light smoke veiled the high bridge. The ship stopped immediately and quickly listed sharply to starboard sinking deeper by the head at the same time. Great confusion arose on the ship. Some of the boats were swung clear and lowered into the water. Many people must have lost their heads. Several boats loaded with people rushed downward, struck the water bow or stern first and filled at once. On the port side, because of the sloping position, fewer boats were swung clear than on the starboard side. The ship blew off steam. At the bow, the name Lusitania in gold letters was visible. It was running 20 nautical miles. 3.25 p.m. Since it seemed as if the steamer could only remain above water for a short time, it went to 24 meters and ran toward the sea. Nor could I have fired a second torpedo into this swarm of people who were trying to save themselves. 4.15 p.m. Went to 11 meters and took a look around. In the distance straight ahead, a number of lifeboats were moving. Nothing more was to be seen of the Lusitania. The wreck must lie 14 nautical miles from the old head of Kinsale Lighthouse, at an angle of 358 degrees to the right of it, in 90 meters of water, 27 nautical miles from Queenstown, 51 degrees, 22, 6 north, and 8 degrees, 31 west. The land and the lighthouse could be seen very plainly. 4.20 p.m. When taking a look around, a large steamer was in sight ahead on the port side, with course laid for Fastnet Rock, Tried to get ahead at high speed so as to get a stern shot. 5.08 p.m. 
Conditions for shot very favorable. No possibility of missing if torpedo kept its course. Torpedo did not strike. Since the telescope was cut off for some time after this shot, the cause of failure could not be determined. The steamer, or freighter, was of the canard line. 6.15 p.m. It is remarkable that there is so much traffic on this particular day. Although two large steamers were sunk the day before, south off George's Channel. It is also inexplicable that the Lusitania was not sent through the North Channel. Canadians were not far behind in joining the European fray. Canadian troops were assembled and shipped to England, where they were prepared for battle. Here's a speech given by General Alderson, commander of the 1st Canadian Division, to his troops about to cross the English Channel and head for trench warfare. Here's what he was reported to have said. All ranks of the Canadian Division, we are about to occupy and maintain a line of trenches. I have something to say to you at this moment, which is well that you should consider. We are taking over, on the whole, dry trenches. I have visited some myself. They are intact, and the parapets are good. Let me warn you first that we have already had several casualties while you have been attached to other divisions. Some of these casualties were avoidable, and that is war. But I suspect that some of them, at least a few, could have been avoided. I have heard of cases in which men have exposed themselves with no military object and perhaps only to gratify curiosity. We cannot lose good men like this. We shall want them if we advance, and we shall want them all if the Germans advance. Do not expose your heads. Do not look around corners, unless for a purpose which is necessary at the moment for you to do. It will not often be necessary. You are provided with means of observing the enemy without exposing your heads. To lose your life without military necessity is to deprive the state of good soldiers. Young and brave men enjoy taking risks. But a soldier who takes unnecessary risks through levity is not playing the game. And the man who does it is also stupid. For whatever be the average practice of the German army, the individual shots whom they employ as snipers shoot straight and screen from observation behind the lines they are always watching. If you put your head over the parapet without orders, they will hit that head. Shoot at nothing. There is another thing. Troops new to the trenches always shoot at nothing the first night. You will not do so. It wastes ammunition and it hurts no one. And the enemy says, Ah, those are new and nervous troops. You will be shelled in the trenches. When you are shelled, sit low and sit tight. This is easy advice, for there is nothing else to do. If you get out, you will only get it worse. And if you go out, the Germans will go in. And if the Germans go in, we shall counterattack and put them out. And that will cost us hundreds of men instead of a few who the shells may injure. The Germans do not like the bayonet, nor do they support bayonet attacks. If they get up to you, or if you get up to them... Go right in with the bayonet. You have the physique to drive it home. That you will do, I am sure. I do not envy the Germans. 
if you can get among them with the bayonet. There's one more thing. My old regiment, the Royal West Kent, has been here since the beginning of the war and has never lost a trench. The army says the West Kents never budge. I am proud of the great record my old regiment has, and I think of it as a good omen. I now belong to you, and you belong to me. And before too long, the army will say, the Canadians never budge. Lads, it can be left there, and there I leave it. The Germans will never turn you out. I may, before concluding, point out that the most severe military critics, both in Britain and in France, are loud in their admiration of the organizing power which in a non-military country has provided so fine a force in so short a time. By the spring of 1915, Canadian soldiers were in the thick of it. But they were also the subject of a curious, if untrue, wartime atrocity that likely never happened, yet made for some fine inspirational propaganda. It was a story simply referred to as the crucified Canadian soldier, and concerned a widespread and believable story of an Allied soldier serving in the Canadian Corps who had been crucified with bayonets on a barn door or a tree while fighting on the Western Front during World War I. Three witnesses said they saw an unidentified crucified Canadian soldier near the Battle of Ypres, Belgium, on or around the 24th of April 1915, but there was no conclusive proof such a crucifixion actually occurred. The eyewitness accounts were somewhat contradictory, no crucified body was ever found, and no factual knowledge was uncovered at the time about the identity of the supposedly crucified soldier. Yet, on May 10, 1915, the Times of London printed a short newspaper account headlined Torture of a Canadian Officer, as coming from its Paris correspondent. According to the report, Canadian soldiers wounded at Ypres had told how one of their officers had been crucified to a wall by bayonets thrust through his hands and feet before having another bayonet driven through his throat and finally riddled with bullets. The soldiers said that it had been seen by the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and that they had heard the Fusiliers' officers talking about it. Two days later, on March the 12th, in the British House of Commons, Robert Houston asked Harold Tennant, then the British Undersecretary of State for War, whether he has any information regarding the crucifixion of three Canadian soldiers recently captured by the Germans who nailed them with bayonets to the side of a wooden structure. Tennant replied that no information as to such an atrocity having been perpetrated had yet reached the War Office. Houston then asked if Tennant was aware that Canadian officers and Canadian soldiers who were eyewitnesses of the incidents had made affidavits, and whether the officer in command at Boulogne had not called the attention of the War Office to them. It was then stated that inquiries would be made. On May 15th, the Times published a letter from a member of the Army, according to which the crucified soldier was in fact said to be a sergeant, and he had been found transfixed to the wooden fence of a farm building. The letter added that he had been repeatedly stabbed with bayonets and that there were many puncture wounds in his body. The unidentified correspondent had not heard that the crucifixion had been witnessed by any Allied forces and commented that there was room to suppose that the man had been dead when he was crucified. On May 19th, Robert Houston returned to the subject in the House of Commons, asking Harold Tennant, 
whether he has any official information showing that during the recent fighting, when the Canadians were temporarily driven back, they were compelled to leave about 40 of their wounded comrades in a barn, and that on recapturing the position, they found that the Germans had bayoneted all of the wounded, with the exception of the sergeant, and that the Germans had removed the figure of Christ from the large village crucifix and fastened the sergeant while alive to the cross, and whether he is aware that the crucifixion of our soldiers is becoming a practice of the Germans. Tennant replied that the military authorities in France had standing instructions to send details of any authenticated atrocities committed against British troops, and that no official information had been received. He added that inquiries were being made and were not yet complete. Colonel Ernest J. Chambers, the Canadian chief censor, began investigating the story soon after it surfaced. He searched for eyewitnesses and found a private who swore under affidavit that he had seen three Canadian soldiers bayoneted to a barn door three miles from St. Julian. However, the sworn testimony from two English soldiers, who claimed to have seen the corpse of a Canadian soldier fastened with bayonets to a barn door, was subsequently debunked when it was discovered that the part of the front involved had never been occupied by Germans. The story made headline news around the world, and the Allies repeatedly used the supposed incident in their war propaganda, including being mentioned in the U.S. propaganda film The Prussian Kerr, produced by the Fox Film Corporation in 1918, which included scenes of an Allied soldier's crucifixion. As well, Robert Graves mentions the story in his famous World War I autobiography, Goodbye to All That, but described the story as unsubstantiated. The story of the crucified Canadian is often varied, though the most common version tells how the Germans had captured a Canadian soldier and crucified him with bayonets on a wooden cross at Maple Copse near Sanctuary Wood in the Ypres sector. Nor was the victim always Canadian. Ian Hay, who dated the incident to spring 1915, maintained that the victim was British and that he was crucified on a tree by German cavalrymen. A version of that story appeared in the Los Angeles newspapers but kept the Canadian nationality, though it made the atrocity story involve two soldiers. Another story told at the time involved a Canadian soldier who allegedly helped take down the soldier's body and who had suggested the crucified soldier appeared to be a sergeant from the medical service. He was possibly from Brantford, and at some time the victim was identified as Sergeant Thomas Elliott of Brantford. Elliot himself would later write to his local pastor to report that he was still alive and obviously not the man involved. According to Private George Barry of the 13th Battalion, on the 24th of April, 1915, he saw a party of Germans in the village of St. Julian, which had been in the rear of the 1st Canadian Division until a gas attack on the 22nd of April, when it became the front line. Berry reported that he saw what appeared to be a man in British uniform who had been crucified to a post by eight bayonets. In 1918, a British artist, Francis Derwent Wood, created a 32-inch high bronze sculpture entitled Canada's Golgotha. It depicted a Canadian soldier crucified on a barn door and surrounded by jeering Germans. It was to be included in the exhibition of the Canadian War Memorial Fund collection and was widely publicized before the exhibition opened. 
The exhibition at Burlington House, London, was due to open in January 1919, just before the signing of the Paris Peace Treaty. But then, Canadian Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden requested further investigation into the veracity of the story, while the German government formally requested that the Canadian government publicly acknowledge that the story of the crucified soldier was untrue or else provide evidence. The official Canadian response to the Germans was that they had sufficient evidence to believe that the account was true, including that the victim was a Sergeant Brandt. But when the Germans demanded a part in the investigation, the sculpture was withdrawn from the exhibition and was not shown again until the 1990s. The sculpture was also displayed in the year 2000 at an exhibition entitled Under the Sign of the Cross, Creative Expressions of Christianity in Canada at the Canadian Museum of Civilization, and again provoked controversy. British documentary filmmaker Ian Overton investigated the story of the crucified soldier, as well as other myths of World War I, in his doctoral dissertation. He then developed them into a television documentary, which appeared in 2002 as part of UK's Channel 4 Secret History series. Overton had uncovered new historical evidence, which identified the crucified soldier as Sergeant Harry Band of the Central Ontario Regiment of the Canadian Infantry, who was reported missing in action on the 24th of April, 1915, near Ypres. Other soldiers in his unit wrote to Band's sister Elizabeth Petrie to express their condolences, and, a year later, one of them finally confirmed in a letter to her that suspicions that her brother had been the crucified soldier were true. Band's body was never recovered, and he is commemorated on the Menin Gate Memorial near Ypres, Belgium. The evidence discovered by Overton included a typewritten note by a British nurse found in the Little Collection of War Correspondents in Leeds University. The note related comments by a Lance Corporal C.M. Brown to his nurse, Miss Ursula Violet Challoner, whom he told of a Sergeant Harry Band who was crucified after a battle of Ypres on one of the doors of a barn with five bayonets in him. Some accounts erroneously name the soldier identified in Overton's documentary as Harry Banks, thus creating an apparent contradiction, in that the only Canadian soldier of that name enlisted in the Overseas Expeditionary Force on the 1st of September 1915 in Victoria, British Columbia, some five months after the supposed crucifixion. Finally, the story is mentioned frequently in Paul Gross's film Passchendaele, although the main character, Michael Dunn, claims that the incident stems from exaggeration and that artillery fire was responsible for appearing to pin the body of a soldier to a barn door. Whatever the facts of the story, one thing remains certain. The first casualty of war is most certainly the whole truth and nothing but. Though the story of the crucified Canadian probably belongs in the history of propaganda rather than the history of World War I, there is no denying the horrible sacrifice in human lives of the more notorious Battle of the Somme, the first great battle of World War I, and one that still reverberates today with incredible disbelief. Yet it did happen, and there is no denying its impact still on many Canadian families who lost loved ones there and who are well remembered, especially today. In terms of human lives lost, the Battle of the Somme was one of the deadliest engagements of the First World War. 
During that battle's five-month duration, over three million soldiers from all sides fought, with more than one million killed or wounded. On the first day alone, British forces suffered over 57,000 casualties, including 19,000 soldiers killed. Those numbers included more than 700 Newfoundlanders who were serving with the British forces before that province joined Confederation in 1949. For its part, Canada itself suffered 24,000 killed, wounded or gone missing by the end of that five-month Battle of the Somme. By comparison, more than 66,000 Canadians would eventually die during the entire four-and-a-half-year Great War. Or, if you will, by 21st century standards, more than twice the nearly 30,000 Canadians who have been killed so far by COVID-19. In the summer of 1916, the line of trenches demarcating the Western Front stretched from the English Channel across the length of France to the Swiss border. At Verdun, near the middle of this line, French and German troops were bogged down. The objective of the Somme offensive was to relieve the pressure on Verdun and to push the British line forward. The attack began on July 1st, 1916, with a predominantly British force clamoring out of its trenches and crossing no man's land under withering German machine gun and artillery fire. The attack soon stalled and deteriorated into disaster. On that first day, the British suffered almost 60,000 casualties, making it the bloodiest day in British military history. Undeterred, the British command ordered the assault to continue the next day with the hope of breaking through the German lines. This attempt and the others that followed through the summer and fall months produced no breakthrough. Finally, with the approach of winter, the battle was abandoned in November. The final tally included 420,000 British casualties, 200,000 French, and the Germans with 500,000. After all that, the military reward was a six-mile movement of the British front line into German territory. It remains the most costly six miles of earth anywhere in the modern world. Among the French troops waiting to assault the German trenches on that July 1st was an American named Alan Seeger. He graduated from Harvard in 1910 and had spent two years in Greenwich Village before moving to Paris. Alan Seeger was a poet, and he thrived in the bohemian atmosphere of Paris's left bank. When war broke, Seeger joined the French Foreign Legion in order to defend the country he loved so much. He did not abandon his poetry. One of his compositions during his wartime period was an eerily prophetic poem entitled Rendezvous with Death. I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. Seeger kept that appointment with death on July 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme. He was 28 years old. But Seeger also kept a diary of his experiences in the French Foreign Legion. This diary, along with his personal letters, was published in 1917. His final letter was written to a friend as he waited along with his company to be called up to join the opening attack of the Battle of the Somme. June 28, 1916. We go up to the attack tomorrow. This will probably be the biggest thing yet. 
we are to have the honour of marching in the first wave. I will write you soon if I get through all right. If not, my only earthly care is for my poems. I am glad to be going in the first wave. If you are in this thing at all, it is best to be in to the limit. And this is the supreme experience. The rest of Alan Seeger's story was told through the words of another friend, also a soldier in his company. At eight o'clock on the morning of July 1st, there was roll call for the day's orders, and we were told that the general offensive would begin at nine without us, as we were in reserve, and that we should be notified of the day and hour that we were to go into action. When this report was finished, we were ordered to shell fatigue, unloading eight-inch shells from automobile trucks which brought them up to our position. All was hustle and bustle. The colonial regiments had carried the first German lines and thousands upon thousands of prisoners kept arriving and leaving. Ambulances filed along the roads continuously. As the news began to arrive, we left our work to seek more details, picking up souvenirs, postcards, letters, soldiers' notebooks, and chatting all the time, when suddenly a voice called out, The company will fall in to go to the first line. About four o'clock, the order came to get ready for the attack. None could help thinking of what the next few hours would bring. One minute's anguish, and then, once in the ranks, faces became calm and serene, a kind of gravity falling upon them, while on each could be read the determination and expectation of victory. Two battalions were to attack Belois Santerre, our company being the reserve battalion. The companies forming the first wave were deployed on the plain. Bayonets glittered in the air above the corn, already quite tall. The first section, Allen's section, formed the right and vanguard of the company, and mine formed the left wing. After the first bound forward, we lay flat on the ground, and I saw the first section advancing beyond us and making toward the extreme right of the village of Belois-en-Santerre. I caught sight of Seeger and called to him, making a sign with my hand. He answered with a smile. How pale he was! His tall silhouette stood out on the green of the cornfield. He was the tallest man in his section. His head erect and pride in his eye, I saw him running forward with bayonet fixed. Soon he disappeared, and that was the last time I saw my friend. It was the summer of 1915, and the British were desperate. Fighting on the Western Front had degenerated into stalemate. The ditches that separated the opposing forces proved an insurmountable barrier that had transformed the conflict from a war of movement into a deadly battle of attrition. A new fighting vehicle was needed, one that could traverse the cratered moonscape of the Western Front and breach the line of enemy trenches. This would allow the cavalry to pour through the exposed gap and envelop the Germans from behind. What was needed was a tank. Development of the tank began in the summer of 1915. The idea was to combine the caterpillar tracks of an American tractor with an ironclad machine that could straddle the enemy's trenches. By spring of the following year, a working model was available for testing. 
Manned by a crew of four, the 30-ton weapons armament consisted of two cannon mounted on its sides. It lumbered along at three miles an hour. Encased in an unlit steel box, the crew suffered in an atmosphere that was only one stop short of hell. Unbearably hot, dusty, noisy, the air filled with the nauseating stench of gas fumes. The new weapon made its battlefield debut on September 15, 1916, when 50 of the machines joined the Battle of the Somme in a third attempt to attack and break through the German defenses. The attack failed. No breakthrough occurred. Only 35 of the tanks actually took part in the battle. Their presence shocked the enemy, but their practical impact was minimal due to a lack of effective tactics and numerous mechanical failures. But the door to the future was opened and the first step taken in the development of a weapon that would dominate the battlefield of future wars. Bert Cheney was a 19-year-old signal officer and had a front row seat as three of the new weapons made their appearance in his sector of the battlefield. We join his story as the tanks lumber into position before the attack. We heard strange throbbing noises, and lumbering slowly toward us came three huge mechanical monsters such as we had never seen before. My first impression was that they looked ready to topple on their noses, but their tails and the two little wheels at the back held them down and kept them level. Big metal things they were, with two sets of caterpillar wheels that went right round the body. There was a huge bulge on each side, with a door in the bulging part, and machine guns on swivels poked out from either side. The engine, a petrol engine of massive proportions, occupied practically all the inside space. Mounted behind each door was a motorcycle type of saddle, and there was just about enough room left for the belts of ammunition and the drivers. I was attached to battalion headquarters, and the colonel, adjutant, sergeant major, and myself with four signalers had come up to the front line. From this position, the colonel could see his men leave the assembly trench, move forward with the tanks, jump over us, and advance to the enemy trenches. As a new style of attack, he thought it would be one of the highlights of the war. While it was still dark, we heard the steady drone of heavy engines, and by the time the sun had risen, the tanks were approaching our front line dead on time. The Germans must have heard them too, and although they had no idea what to expect, they promptly laid down a heavy curtain of fire on our front line. This had the effect of making us keep our heads down, but every now and again we felt compelled to pop up and look back to see how the tanks were progressing. It was most heartening to watch their advance, and we were almost ready to cheer, but there was a surprise in store for us. Instead of going on to the German lines, the three tanks assigned to us straddled our front line, stopped, and then opened up a murderous machine gun fire, enfilading us left and right. There they sat, squat monstrous things, noses stuck up in the air, crushing the sides of our trench out of shape with their machine guns swiveling around and firing like mad. Everyone dived for cover, except the colonel. He jumped on top of the parapet, shouting at the top of his voice, Runner! Runner! Go tell those tanks to stop firing at once! At once, I say! By now, the enemy fire had risen to a crescendo, but giving no thought to his personal safety, as he saw the tanks firing on his own men, he ran forward and furiously rained blows with his cane on the side of one of the tanks in an endeavor to attract their attention. 
although what with the sounds of the engines and the firing in such an enclosed space, no one in the tank could hear him. They finally realized they were on the wrong trench and moved on, frightening the Jerrys out of their wits and making them scuttle like frightened rabbits. One of the tanks got cut up in a tree stump and never reached their front line, and a second had its rear steering wheels shot off and couldn't guide itself. The crew thought it more prudent to stop, so they told us afterwards, rather than to keep going, as they felt they might go out of control and run on until they reached Berlin. The third tank went on and ran through Flair, flattening everything they thought should be flattened, pushing down walls and thoroughly enjoying themselves, our lads coming up behind them, taking over the village, or what was left of it, and digging in on the line prescribed for them before the attack. This was one of the rare occasions when they had passed through the enemy fire, and they were enjoying themselves, chasing and rounding up the Jerry's, collecting thousands of prisoners, and sending them back to our lines escorted only by pioneers armed with shovels. The four men in the tank that had got itself hung up dismounted, all in the heat of battle, stretching themselves, scratching their heads, then slowly and deliberately walked round their vehicle, inspecting it from every angle, and appeared to hold a conference among themselves. After standing around for a few minutes, looking somewhat lost, they calmly took out from the inside of the tank a primus stove, and, using the side of the tank as a cover from any fire, sat down on the ground and made themselves some tea. The battle was over, as far as they were concerned. The German Zeppelins were the ultimate terror weapon of their day, silent behemoths that prowled the night skies and seemingly imperious to attack by plane or anti-aircraft fire. Just a mention of the name Zeppelin was enough to send cold chills up and down the spines of their intended victims. The dirigible's name came from one of its designers, Frederick von Zeppelin, who introduced his first giant airship at the turn of the 20th century. With the outbreak of war, they were quickly pressed into service as bombers and reconnaissance aircraft. The first bombing raid on London was made on the night of June 1st, 1915, by a single ship. Other raids followed, and as many as 16 Zeppelins attacking in a single night. Initially, defenders were powerless, as the Zeppelins flew at altitudes too high for defending aircraft or artillery to reach. Mother Nature was Zeppelin's primary enemy, as the unwieldy aircraft were easily thrown off course by high winds. Additionally, the darkness of the night made it difficult for crews to find their targets. Although the actual material damage inflicted by the Zeppelins was minimal, their psychological impact on the British population was significant. Precious air and ground units were diverted from the war front to the home front to cover this threat from the sky. As the war progressed, technological advances that allowed defending aircraft to reach or exceed the Zeppelin's altitude and the introduction of incendiary bullets turned the advantage to the defenders. By the end of the war, the Zeppelins had been withdrawn from combat. Michael McDonough was a reporter for a London newspaper. He witnessed the destruction of one of the giant airships as it took part in a raid on the city during the night of October 1, 1916. I saw last night what was probably the most appalling spectacle associated with the war which London is likely to provide. 
the bringing down in flames of a raiding zeppelin. I was late at the office and leaving just before midnight. I was crossing to Blackfriars Bridge to get a tram car home when my attention was attracted by frenzy cries of, Oh, oh, she's hit, from the wayfarers who were standing in the middle of the road, gazing at the sky in the northern direction. Looking up, the clear run of Newbridge Street and Farrington Road, I saw high in the sky a concentrated blaze of searchlights, and its center a ruddy glow which rapidly spread into the outline of a blazing airship. Then the searchlights were turned off, and the zeppelin drifted perpendicularly to the ground, a giant pyramid of flames, red and orange, like a ruined falling star slowly to earth. Its glare lit up the streets and gave a ruddy tint even to the waters of the Thames. The spectacle lasted two or three minutes. It was so horribly fascinating that I felt spellbound, almost suffocated with emotion, ready hysterically to laugh or cry. When at last the doomed airship vanished from sight, there arose a shout of the like which I have never heard in London before, a hoarse shout of mingled excretation, triumph, and joy, a swelling shout that appeared to be rising from all parts of the metropolis, ever increasing in force and intensity. It was London's Te Dunham for another crowning deliverance. Four zeppelins destroyed in one month. I got from a member of the Potter's Bar anti-aircraft battery an account of the bringing down of the Zeppelin. He said the airship was caught in the beams of three searchlights from stations a mile apart and was being filed on by three batteries, also from distances widely separated. She turned and twisted, rose and fell in a vain attempt to escape to the shelter of outer darkness. None of the shells reached her. When an aeroplane appeared and dropped three flares the signal to ground batteries to cease firing as he was about to attack. The airmen, flying about the Zeppelin, let go rounds of machine gun fire with no effect, until one round found, fired into her from beneath, set her on fire, and down she came, a blazing mass, roaring like a furnace, breaking as she fell into two parts, which were held together by internal cables, until they reached the ground. The framework of the zeppelin was laid in the field in two enormous heaps, separated from each other by about a hundred yards. Most of the forepart hung suspended from a tree. The crew numbered nineteen. One body was found in the field some distance from the wreckage. He must have jumped from the doomed ship from a considerable height. So great was the force with which he struck the ground that I saw the imprint of his body clearly defined and the stubbly grass. There was a round hole for the head, then in deep impressions of the trunk, with outstretched arms, and finally the widely separated legs. Life was in him when they picked him up, but the spark soon went out. He was, in fact, the commander, who had been in the one of the gondolas hanging from the airship. With another journalist, I went to the barn where the bodies were laid. As we approached, we heard a woman say to the sergeant of soldiers in charge, May I go in? I would like to see a dead German. No, ma'am. We can't admit ladies, was the reply. Introducing myself as a newspaper reporter, I made the same request. The sergeant said to me, uh, If you particularly wish, you may go in. I would, however, advise you not to do so. If you do go in, you will regret your curiosity. I persisted my request 
explaining to the sergeant that I particularly wanted to see the body of the commander. I was allowed to go in. The sergeant removed the covering from one of the bodies, which lay apart from the others. The only disfigurement was a light distortion of the face. It was that of a young man, clean-shaven. He was heavily clad in dark uniform and an overcoat, with a thick muffler around his neck. I knew who he was. At the office we had an official information of the identity of the commander of the airship, though publication of both particulars were prohibited. It was this knowledge that I had that determined me to see the body. The dead man was Heinrich Mathe, the most renowned of the German airship commanders, and the parish ship was his. Yes, there he lay in death at my feet, the bugaboo of the Zeppelin raids, the first and most ruthless of these pirates of the air bent on our destruction. Of course, not all people who died during the Great War were valiant soldiers or innocent civilians. Some were suspected of simply working undercover for the wrong side. Such was the case of Mata Hari, the subject of more than a few Hollywood movies and countless books. But who was she? And how did she actually die? Mata Hari was the stage name Dutch-born Marguerite Zell took when she became one of Paris's most popular exotic dancers on the eve of World War I. Although details of her past are sketchy, it is believed that she was born in the Netherlands in 1876 and married a Dutch army officer 21 years her senior when she was 18. She quickly bore him two children and followed him when he was assigned to Java in 1897. The marriage proved rocky. The couple returned to the Netherlands in 1902 with their daughter. Their other child, a son, had died mysteriously in Java. Margaretha's husband obtained a divorce and retained custody of his daughter. Margaretha then made her way to Paris, where she reinvented herself as an Indian temple dancer, thoroughly trained in the erotic dances of the East. She took on the name Matahari and was soon luring audiences in the thousands as she performed in Paris, Berlin, Vienna, Madrid, and other European capitals. She also attracted a number of highly placed aristocratic lovers willing to reward her handsomely for the pleasure of her company. With the outbreak of World War I, Matahari's cross-border liaison with German political and military figures came to the attention of the French secret police, and she was placed under surveillance. Brought in for questioning, the French reportedly induced her to travel to neutral Spain in order to develop relationships with the German naval and army attaches in Madrid and report any intelligence back to Paris. In the murky world of the spy, however, the French suspected her of being a double agent. In February 1917, Matahari returned to Paris and was immediately arrested and charged with being a German spy. Her trial in July revealed some damning evidence that the dancer was unable to adequately explain. She was convicted and sentenced to death. In the early morning hours of October the 15th, Matahari was awakened and taken by car from her Paris prison cell to an army barracks on the city's outskirts, where she was to meet her fate. Henry Wales was a British reporter who covered the execution. We join his story as Matahari is awakened in the early morning of October the 15th. She had made a direct appeal to the French president for clemency and was expectantly awaiting his reply. 
The first intimation she received that her plea had been denied was when she was led at daybreak from her cell in the St. Lazare prison to a waiting automobile and then rushed to the barracks where the firing squad awaited her. Never once had the iron will of the beautiful woman failed her. Father Arbas, accompanied by two sisters of charity, Captain Bouchardon and Maitre Clunette, her lawyer, entered her cell where she was still sleeping, a calm, untroubled sleep, it was remarked by the turnkeys and trustees. The sisters gently shook her. She arose and was told that her hour had come. May I write two letters, was all she asked. Consent was given immediately by Captain Bouchardon, and pen, ink, paper, and envelopes were given to her. She seated herself at the edge of the bed and wrote the letters with feverish haste. She handed them over to the custody of her lawyer. Then she drew on her stockings, black, silken, filmy things, grotesque in the circumstances. She placed her high-heeled slippers on her feet and tied the silken ribbons over her insteps. She arose and took the long black velvet cloak, edged around the bottom with fur, and with a huge square fur collar hanging down the back from a hook over the head of her bed. She placed this cloak over the heavy silk kimono which she had been wearing over her nightdress. Her wealth of black hair was still coiled about her head in braids. She put on a large, flapping, black felt hat with a black silk ribbon and bow. Slowly and indifferently, it seemed, she pulled on a pair of black kid gloves. Then she said, calmly, I am ready. The party slowly filed out of her cell to the waiting automobile. The car sped through the heart of the sleeping city. It was scarcely half-past five in the morning, and the sun was not yet fully up. Clear across Paris, the car whirled to the Caserne de Vincennes, the barracks of the old fort which the Germans stormed in 1870. The troops were already drawn up for the execution. The twelve Zouaves forming the firing squad stood in line, their rifles at ease. A sub-officer stood behind them, sword drawn. The automobile stopped and the party descended, Matahari last. The party walked straight to the spot where a little hummock of earth reared itself seven or eight feet high and afforded a background for such bullets as might miss the human target. As Father Arbas spoke with the condemned woman, a French officer approached, carrying a white cloth. The blindfold, he whispered to the nuns who stood there and handed it to them. Must I wear that? asked Matahari, turning to her lawyer, as her eyes glimpsed the blindfold. Maitre Clunette turned interrogatively to the French officer. If Madame prefers not, it makes no difference, replied the officer, hurriedly turning away. Matahari was not bound, and she was not blindfolded. She stood, gazing steadfastly at her executioners, when the priest, the nuns, and her lawyer stepped away from her. The officer in command of the firing squad, who had been watching his men like a hawk that none might examine his rifle, and try to find out whether he was destined to fire the blank cartridge which was in the breech of one rifle, seemed relieved that the business would soon be over. A sharp, crackling command in the file of twelve men assumed rigid positions at attention. Another command, and their rifles were at their shoulders. Each man gazed down his barrel at the breast of the woman, which was the target. She did not move a muscle. The under-officer in charge had moved to a position where from the corners of their eyes they could see him. His sword was extended in the air. 
it dropped. The sun, by this time up, flashed on the burnished blade as it described an arc in falling. Simultaneously, the sound of the volley rang out. Flame and a tiny puff of grayish smoke issued from the muzzle of each rifle. Automatically, the men dropped their arms. At the report, Matahari fell. She did not die as actors and moving picture stars would have us believe that people die when they are shot. She did not throw up her hands, nor did she plunge straight forward or straight back. Instead, she seemed to collapse. Slowly, inertly, she settled to her knees, her head up always and without the slightest change of expression on her face. For the fraction of a second, it seemed she tottered there, on her knees, gazing directly at those who had taken her life. Then she fell backward, bending at the waist, with her legs doubled up beneath her. She lay prone, motionless, with her face turned toward the sky. A non-commissioned officer who accompanied a lieutenant drew his revolver from the big black holster strapped about his waist. Bending over, he placed the muzzle of the revolver almost, but not quite, against the left temple of the spy. He pulled the trigger, and the bullet tore into the brain of the woman. Matahari was surely dead. Another notorious enemy combatant in the Great War was known as the Red Baron. Yet for all his superior and deadly skills, he still remains a respected war hero to both sides. Why? Perhaps because he fought with honor and dignity as much as anyone can preserve those unique values in wartime. But still, it's fair to ask, as we did of Matahari, who was he? With 80 confirmed kills, Baron Manfred von Richthofen was World War I's highest scoring combat pilot and its most famous flyer. He began his military career as a cavalryman, but switched to the Air Corps in 1915, first as an observer and then as a fighter pilot. He scored his first combat kill in September of 1916. Richthofen became Germany's top-scoring living ace in January 1917, after shooting down his 16th victim. He was awarded the Orden Polomerite, the famous Blue Max, Germany's highest military honor, and given command of his own unit, populated with the cream of the crop of Germany's combat pilots. In order to distinguish himself to his fellow flyers and to ground troops, Richthofen painted his plane a blazing red, earning the name the Red Baron from his British opponents. Richthofen's comrades followed suit and painted their planes with unique colors, prompting the British to refer to Richthofen's unit as the Flying Circus. By the spring of 1918, the Red Baron had shot down 80 victims. His luck was about to run out. On April 21st, he chased what would have been kill number 81, far behind the British lines. The grim ballet between hunter and hunted brought both planes closer and closer to the ground. With his quarry firmly in his sights, the Red Baron was suddenly felled by a single bullet coming either from troops on the ground or from a Canadian pilot flying in hot pursuit and desperately trying to save his comrade. British buried their famous opponent the following day with full military honours. 
Richthofen was 25 years old. The early spring of 1917 brought dark days for the Royal Flying Corps fighting on the Western Front. 912 British flyers died that month, which became known as Bloody April. Richthofen accounted for 21 of the British planes shot down. His highest scoring month. Richthofen's diary describes the events of one of those April days. The 2nd of April, 1917, was a very warm day for my squadron. From my quarters, I could clearly hear the drum fire of the guns, which was, again, particularly violent. I was still in bed when my orderly rushed into the room and exclaimed, Sir, the English are here! Sleepy as I was, I looked out of the window, and really, there were my dear friends circling over the flying ground. I jumped out of my bed and into my clothes in a jiffy. My red bird had been pulled out and was ready for starting. My mechanics knew that I should probably not allow such a favorable moment to go by unutilized. Everything was ready. I snatched up my furs and then went off. I was the last to start. My comrades were much nearer to the enemy. I feared that my prey would escape me that I should have to look on from a distance while the others were fighting. Suddenly, one of the impertinent fellows tried to drop down upon me. I allowed him to come near, and then we started a merry quadrille. Sometimes my opponent flew on his back, and sometimes he did other tricks. He had a double-seated chaser. I was his master, and very soon I recognized that he could not escape me. During an interval in the fighting, I convinced myself that we were alone. It followed that the victory would accrue to him who was calmest, who shot best, and who had the clearest brain in a moment of danger. After a short time, I got him beneath me without seriously hurting him with my gun. We were at least two kilometers from the front. I thought he intended to land, but there I had made a mistake. Suddenly, when he was only a few yards above the ground, he once more went off on a straight course. He tried to escape me. That was too bad. I attacked him again, and I went so low that I feared I should touch the roofs of the houses of the village beneath me. The Englishman defended himself up to the last moment. At the very end, I felt that my engine had been hit. Still... I did not let go. He had to fall. He rushed at full speed right into a block of houses. There was little left to be done. This was once more a case of splendid daring. He defended himself to the last. However, in my opinion, he showed more foolhardiness than courage. This was one of the cases where one must differentiate between energy and idiocy. He had come down in any case, but he paid for his stupidity with his life. I was delighted with the performance of my red machine during its morning work and returned to our quarters. My comrades were still in the air, and they were very surprised when, as we met at breakfast, I told them I had scored my 32nd machine. A very young lieutenant had bagged his first aeroplane. We were all very merry and prepared everything for further battles. 
I then went and groomed myself. I had not had time to do it previously. I was visited by a dear friend, Lieutenant Voss of Bulky's squadron. We chatted. Voss had downed on the previous day his 23rd machine. He was next to me on the list and is at present my most redoubtable competitor. When he started to fly home, I offered to accompany him part of the way. We went on a roundabout way over the fronts. The weather had turned so bad that we could not hope to find any more game. Beneath us, there were dense clouds. Voss did not know the country, and he began to feel uncomfortable. When we passed above Eris, I met my brother, who also is in my squadron, and who had lost his way. He joined us. Of course, he recognized me at once by the color of my machine. Suddenly, we saw a squadron approaching from the other side. Immediately, the thought occurred to me, Now comes number 33. Although there were nine Englishmen, and although they were on their own territory, they preferred to avoid battle. I thought perhaps it would be better for me to repaint my machine. Nevertheless, we caught them up. The important thing in aeroplanes is that they are speedy. I was nearest to the enemy and attacked the man to the rear. To my greatest delight, I noticed that he accepted battle, and my pleasure was increased when I discovered that his comrades deserted him. So, I had once more a single fight. It was a fight similar to the one which I had had in the morning. My opponent did not make matters easy for me. He knew the fighting business, and it was particularly awkward for me that he was a good shot. To my great regret, that was quite clear to me. A favorable wind came to my aid. It drove both of us into the German lines. My opponent discovered that the matter was not so simple as he had imagined. So, he plunged and disappeared into a cloud. He had nearly saved himself. I plunged after him and dropped out of the cloud, and as luck would have it, found myself close beside him. I fired and he fired without any tangible result. At last, I hit him. I noticed a ribbon of white benzene vapor. He had to land, for his engine had come to a stop. He was a stubborn fellow. He was bound to recognize that he had lost the game. If he continued shooting, I could kill him. For meanwhile, we had dropped to an altitude of about 900 feet. However, the Englishman defended himself exactly as did his countrymen in the morning. He fought until he landed. When he had come to the ground, I flew over him at an altitude of about 30 feet in order to ascertain whether I had killed him or not. What did the rascal do? He took his machine gun and shot holes into my machine. Afterwards, Voss told me, if that had happened to him, he would have shot the airman on the ground. As a matter of fact, I ought to have done so, for he had not surrendered. He was one of the few fortunate fellows who escaped with their lives. I felt very merry, flew home, and celebrated my 33rd airplane. 
of course, there was no greater celebrated hero of the Great War than T.E. Lawrence, or as he is better known, Lawrence of Arabia. Many books, movies, and documentaries have been made of his life, and more so, his essential invention of guerrilla warfare. Yet, T.E. Lawrence had his demons and his regrets after surviving the Great War. He had given up, as it were, the life he once had and that he could never regain after the Great War was over. Before 1914, 26-year-old T.E. Lawrence worked for the British Museum digging among the Hittite ruins in Mesopotamia. The Oxford graduate had spent years in the desert developing an intimate knowledge and love of the Bedouin tribes that roamed the region. At the outbreak of war, Lawrence was rejected as physically unfit for military service, but his unique knowledge of the area made him a perfect candidate for the intelligence service at Cairo. The war in the Middle East did not go well for the British in the early days of the conflict. Their defeat at Gallipoli and inability to dislodge the Turks from the Dardanelles exposed the Suez Canal to potential attack. Meanwhile, the Arabs viewed the involvement of the Ottoman Empire in World War I as an opportunity to revolt and drive the Turks from their land. Seizing this chance to harass the Turks, the British lent support to the Arabs through shipments of arms and money. The revolt sputtered, however, and was, by 1916, in danger of collapsing. Lawrence was sent to bring order and direction to the Arab cause. The experience transformed the introverted and studious Lawrence into one of the most colorful military figures of the war. For two years, Lawrence and his band of Arab irregulars attacked Turkish strongholds, severed communications, destroyed railways, and supported the British army in the drive north to Damascus. In the following account, Lawrence describes one of the most controversial episodes of his experience in the desert. On September 27, 1918, he and his Arab force were in hot pursuit of a retreating Turkish column numbering approximately 2,000 soldiers. Coming upon the village of Tafas, south of the city of Damascus, they were confronted with the horrifying aftermath of the Turk rampage through the village. Mutilated bodies of women and children lay among the smoking ruins. As the sickened Lawrence watched the scattered Turkish column disappear over the horizon, he gave his order, Take no prisoners. The village lay still under its slow wreaths of white smoke as we rode near on our guard. Some grey heat seemed to hide in the long grass, embracing the ground in the close way of corpses. We looked away from these, knowing they were dead. But from one a little figure tottered off, as if to escape us. It was a child, three or four years old, whose dirty smock was stained red over one shoulder and side, with blood from a large half-fibrous wound, perhaps a lance thrust, just where neck and body joined. The child ran a few steps, then stood and cried to us in a tone of astonishing strength, all else being very silent. Don't hit me, Baba! Abid al-Aziz, choking out something, this was his village, and she might be of his family, flung himself off his camel and stumbled, kneeling in the grass beside the child. His suddenness frightened her, for she threw up her arms and tried to scream, but instead dropped in a little heap while the blood rushed out again over her clothes. Then, I think, she died. 
We rode past the other bodies of men and women and four more dead babies, looking very soiled in the daylight, towards the village, whose loneliness we now knew meant death and horror. By the outskirts were low mud walls, sheepfolds, and on one something red and white. I looked closely and saw the body of a woman, folded across it, bottom upwards, nailed there by a saw bayonet whose haft stuck hideously into the air from between her naked legs. About her lay others, perhaps twenty in all, variously killed. The Zaji burst into wild peals of laughter, the more desolate for the warm sunshine and clear air of this upland afternoon. I said, The best of you bring me the most Turkish dead, and we turned after the fading enemy and on our way shooting down those who had fallen out by the roadside and came imploring our pity. One wounded Turk, half-naked, not able to stand, sat and wept to us. Abdullah turned away his camel's head, but the Zaji, with curses, crossed his track and whipped three bullets from his automatic through the man's bare chest. The blood came out with his heartbeats. Throb, 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 slower and slower. Talal had seen what we had seen. He gave one moan like a hurt animal, then rode to the upper ground and sat there a while on his mare, shivering and looking fixedly after the Turks. I moved near to speak to him, but Alda caught my rein and stayed me. Very slowly Talal drew his headcloth about his face, and then he seemed suddenly to take hold of himself, for he dashed his stirrups into the mare's flanks and galloped headlong, bending low and swaying in the saddle right at the main body of the enemy. It was a long ride down a gentle slope and across a hollow. We sat there like stone while he rushed forward, the drumming of his hooves unnaturally loud in our ears, for we had stopped shooting and the Turks had stopped. Both armies waited for him, and he raced on in the hushed evening till only a few lengths from the enemy, then he sat up in the saddle and cried his war cry, Talal! Talal! twice in a tremendous shout. Instantly their rifles and machine guns crashed out, and he and his mare, riddled through and through with bullets, fell dead among the lance points. Ada looked very cold and grim. Give him mercy. We'll take his price. He shook his rein and moved slowly after the enemy. We called up the peasants now drunk with fear and blood, and sent them from this side and that against the retreating column. The old lion of battle walked in out his heart and made him again our natural, inevitable leader. By a skillful turn, he drove the Turks into bad ground and split their formation into three parts. The third part, the smallest, was mostly made up of German and Austrian machine gunners, grouped round three motor cars and a handful of mounted officers or troopers. They fought magnificently and repulsed us time and again despite our hardiness. The Arabs were fighting like devils, the sweat blurring their eyes, dust parching their throats, while the flame of cruelty and revenge which was burning in their bodies so twisted them that their hands could hardly shoot. By my order, we took no prisoners, for the only time in our war. No doubt, Lawrence of Arabia was not the only man who fought a war and decided within the reactionary flash of one hateful moment not to take any prisoners. For whatever war does to a man or woman, whether soldier, civilian, spy, or U-boat commander, 
It changes utterly the soul of those who go to war. It's a price not often contemplated by those of us lucky enough never to have had to go to war. I'm Kristen Marshand, and for Jeff Bowman, Kathy Chapasky, Rob Filipkowski, Brian and Carol Peterson, and Lynn Stewart, along with our producer, Barry Conway, we'd all like to wish you a thoughtful Remembrance Day. We want to send our special thanks to all those Canadians who have either gone to war or served in our military, including those who have helped create an international name for themselves in those peacekeeping missions Canada has become so well known for around the world. Good day, and God bless. Thank you.